looking, throwing in the end zone. Montana, touchdown, John Taylor. Young to the air, young to Jerry Rice. Touchdown, San Francisco. Young stumbles on the way back and fires up the middle. Pass is caught by Owens. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the 49ers Plus Podcast. I'm your host, Al Moriello, and this is your source for the most objective 49ers analysis plus timely and entertaining pop culture discussions. And today we're going to talk about Brock Purdy getting engaged. Training camp dates have been announced. Head coach rankings per pro football focus. Where does Shanahan rank as an efficient play caller for the past six years? Steve Wilkes, per pro football focus, a top 10 defensive coordinator. We're going to talk about where some 49ers rank as part of ESPN's 50 biggest draft steals of the past decade. Kyle Juszczyk had a lot of good things to say about Brock Purdy. We're going to get into that. And I'm going to dive into the tight end position to see how that looks and ranks on the 49ers team. In the plus section, we're going to be talking about some crazy NBA free agent deals, absurd, some good deals, and the deals that the Lakers made. We're going to be talking box office. How did Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny do? How did an animated movie, Ruby Gilman, the Teenage Kraken, do? No hard feelings with Jennifer Lawrence. Back to the Flash, a weird article that was positing why the Flash did not delve into his Jewish ancestry, if you even remember that this Flash was Jewish. We're going to talk about some unfortunate ESPN layoffs and dive into the Twitter rate limits that got a whole lot of panties, both male and female, in a bunch. But like always, it starts with the 49ers, so let's get right into it. Let's talk Niners. And first off, I want to wish everyone out there a belated happy July 4th. Hopefully, wherever you're listening, you had good weather, barbecued with family and friends. And even if you're listening from overseas, say England, too bad, we won. So let's get into Brock Purdy getting engaged to his longtime girlfriend, Jenna Brandt. Um, who's a former volleyball volleyball star at the University of Northern Iowa. They posted a bunch of beautiful engagement pics on whether it was Instagram and made its way to other forms of social media. So Brock and Jenna uh, were dating going into their freshman year at Iowa State. In 2020, Jenna transferred to the University of Northern Iowa to play volleyball, and obviously Brock finished up his four years at Iowa State. Brock Purdy, 23. Jen, I think the same age, uh, engaged. And just want to throw this out there for all the pro Lance people. Just yet another thing that Brock can do better than Trey Lance. Get engaged. That's a joke, guys. It's a joke. Because remember, I'm not pro Brock or pro Trey Lance. I'm pro best quarterback. But congratulations to Brock Purdy and his now fiance Jenna Brandt. Training camps were announced, so we are getting close 
to actual news regarding things that are happening on the field, albeit a practice field. So rookies will report on July 18th. I'm recording this on July 5th, so we are two weeks away. Veterans appear a week after the rookies, so July 25th. So we just have to hold on two to three more weeks so we can get some actual new news about how players are progressing in the early stages of training camp. So transitioning to coaches, Pro Football Focus ranked head coaches entering the 2023 season. Let me give you the top 10. Andy Reid, Bill Belichick, Mike Tomlin, Kyle Shanahan, John Harbaugh, Sean McVay, Doug Peterson, Nick Sirianni, Sean McDermott, and Brian Dable of the New York Giants. So a couple things to jump out here. So Kyle Shanahan fourth. You know, I think given the past, you know, three out of the four years outside of 2020 when everybody was hurt, the 49ers have been an NFC championship game or better. So that deserves some respect and credit, which he's getting. Andy Reid, how he has elevated the Chiefs the past four seasons with Patrick Mahomes, number one. Bill Belichick, number two, obviously historic, historically what he did with Tom Brady and even got the Patriots with Mac Jones his rookie year to the playoffs, but did not make the playoffs last year. Mike Tomlin has been with the Steelers for a while, Super Bowl champion as well. We'll see what he can do with Kenny Pickett this year and the years to come. John Harbaugh, Super Bowl champion with the Ravens, looking for a bounce back year. Sean McVay, sixth, only two years removed from a Super Bowl with the Rams. And then their whole philosophy of F them picks has now come back to bite them as they really had to shed talent and salary from their roster. And they are viewed by many as a bottom five roster in the league, but still an innovative play caller and a good young head coach. Doug Peterson, great run in Philadelphia, Super Bowl champion, took over the Jaguars last year um, from the mess that Urban Meyer left him, got that team into the playoffs and won a playoff game and gave the Chiefs a good fight in Kansas City. Nick Sirianni, he of the most punchable face of all head coaches, obviously an NFC champion and Super Bowl participant last year, Sean McDermott. You know, 9 and 10, you could argue if you want to swap them or take anybody out and replace. The Bills have only been to one AFC championship game in Sean McDermott's reign. And the Bills, for the past two or two years at least, have been the team where everyone's picking may go to the Super Bowl. And now they feel like an afterthought with the Chiefs, with the Bengals, with maybe the Ravens getting better, with Aaron Rodgers being with the Jets, with the Dolphins. You know, it still may be the Bills' division to win, but it feels like their dominance or how good they could be, that that window is closing a bit. You know, being the ninth best coach in the league is, you know, still top third, right? Um, But I think maybe the shine is off a little bit. And Brian Dable, in his first year with the Giants, obviously turned that team around, got them into the playoffs, beat the Vikings, got crushed by the Eagles in the divisional round, did not make a lot of upgrades to see how much this team can improve year two. Not that year one was a fluke. And 
fortunately for the Giants, even though they're a playoff team, they still have a third place schedule. Eagles, first place, Cowboys, second place, Giants, third place, which was, I think, the same thing going into the 2022 season. So they have a bit of a tougher schedule. At least the upfront is a bit of a gauntlet. But if they can survive some of that, we'll see if Brian Dable can build on year two with Daniel Jones. And I'm sure at some point, Saquon Barkley will be signing his uh, franchise tag if they don't work out a long-term extension. But here's what Pro Football Focus had to say about Kyle Shanahan. Shanahan has been one of the best offensive minds in the league for more than half a decade and continues to be. Since 2019, the Niners have the second-highest cumulative offensive grade, 91.9, behind only the Chiefs. They also rank 7th in the league in EPA per play over that span. The reason for Shanahan being this high on the list comes down to how easy he makes offenses, the offense look in the NFL. Nothing demonstrates that more than when he was able to do with Brock Purdy last season, succeeding at a playoff caliber level with a rookie QB3. Yes, the Niners have great pieces, but Shanahan is the offensive chef that turns good ingredients into the perfect meal. But Shanahan is the offensive chef. Oh, yeah. It's also worth noting how vast and successful his coaching tree is becoming. Robert Sala, Mike McDaniel, D'Amico Ryans, Mike LaFleur, all rose to, to be top candidates for promotion under Shanahan in San Francisco. And I just want to follow this up with where Shanahan is ranked as a play caller. That is a big part of his head coaching duties. And from 2016 which is the year before he joined San Francisco, which was the Falcons Super Bowl year as offensive coordinator to last year. He ranks as the most efficient play caller per PCA analytics. Here's the top five, Kyle Shanahan, Andy Reed, Josh McDaniels, Sean Payton, and Mike McDaniel of the Dolphins. Now, Kyle Shanahan comes under a lot of heat and why? Because he hasn't won the Super Bowl. 49er fans are almost as bad as Yankees fans. And that's saying something because I live in the Northeast. I'm a Mets fan, not a Yankees fan. And I have nothing against the Yankees. But to hear the pissing and moaning of Yankees fans. Now, yes, they haven't won a World Series since, what, 2009, 2007? It's been at least a decade. But there, it still feels like for Yankee fans that there is a right to life, a right to a World Series every year because they're the mighty Yankees putting the, you know, the pinstripe jerseys on with no last names on the back. And that was heightened when the Yankees were winning World Series. And that was the motto under George Steinbrenner before he passed. He would throw money at anything and everything, fire managers on the spot. It was all about winning, and they have, obviously, the most World Series championships of any Major League Baseball team, and that's great. The 49ers, on the other hand, haven't won a Super Bowl since 1994. It's going on nearly 30 years. Got there with Harbaugh, got to three NFC Championship games, and a Super Bowl with Jim Harbaugh. Didn't get there with Steve Mariucci, and then there were a host of mediocre or worse quarterbacks in between. So you had Seifert, some bad co uh, coaches, Mariucci, bad coaches, Harbaugh, bad coaches, and Kyle Shanahan. Good coaches don't grow on trees. And just the same, Shanahan has been to three NFC Championship games and a Super Bowl 
since 2017. It is not the 49ers' right to win the Super Bowl every year. It's not the 49ers' right to be in the Super Bowl every year, to be in the NFC Championship game, or even the playoffs. The NFL, it's hard to win in the NFL, even if you have a talented team, because there could be so many injuries, as the 49ers have had to battle the past five years under uh, Shanahan and Lynch. So the people that are out there that are either, maybe they're not calling for Kyle Shanahan's job, but after, and the Eagles game was not his fault, the the NFC Championship game. Um, I could, you know, mention some times where I think, you know, he got away from things, the Super Bowl, getting away from the run in the second half. People also have to remember, Jimmy Garoppolo was like 19 of 22 or 19 of 23 going into the fourth quarter. He was out playing Patrick Mahomes through three quarters. Couldn't obviously do it in the fourth quarter, but Shanahan also got away from the run. Shanahan did not call a run on the last four plays that the 49ers had around midfield when Jimmy Garoppolo overthrew Emmanuel Sanders on a would-be go-ahead touchdown. But then he or Jimmy also get crucified on the flip side. The NFC Championship game against the Packers, Jimmy threw, what, nine passes? And half of those, I think, came in the first quarter or the first couple drives when they were actually mixing it up. And then when they realized that the run was working, they just kept running the ball. And they were gaining chunks of yards. People are are were crucifying, oh, does Shanahan trust uh, Jimmy Garoppolo, can they win the Super Bowl if he only throws nine passes? Of course he's not going to only throw nine passes. They kept running the ball because it was working. It's not like they ran the ball 35 times for 60 yards. They were gashing the Packers. Why go away from it? Because I guarantee you fans and media and analysts, quote-unquote, that if they went away from the, a run that was working against the Packers and the Packers somehow came back to win that game, Shanahan would have been crucified but he still gets crucified for sticking with it, and by proxy, Jimmy as well. Shanahan does have um, a history of being aggressive, too aggressive when he doesn't need to. I will go back to the championship game against the Eagles, down 14-7 with less than or around two minutes left in the half, calling passes for Josh Johnson, when at that point, you just he got, he got a first down. The first was, I think, a throw to Debo, Got a first down, and then I think that maybe gave Kyle a little bit too much confidence of maybe we can get some points. And it's not Kyle's fault that Josh Johnson dropped a snap and fumbled and the Eagles recovered. But he probably wouldn't have fumbled if they just decided to kneel after that first down. Get out of Dodge. Only down seven points. Get out of Dodge. They still wouldn't have won the game, but I wildly disagreed with that. I'm thrilled that Kyle Shanahan overall is the head coach of the team. He seems to learn and John Lynch learn from their mistakes going year to year, whether it's player acquisition injuries, things that are working on the field or are not working on the field, etc. But to everybody out there that has questions about Kyle Shanahan, my question, my question to you is if Shanahan got fired after this season, name me someone better that you're going to bring in is Mike Tomlin going to get fired? Is Belichick? Is Andy Reid? Is John Harbaugh? Are those going to be your swap outs? And don't give me the, well, there might be some hot up-and-coming offensive coordinator or D coordinator like a D'Amico Ryans or whatever that we could bring in that may do better. Here's how you know Kyle Shanahan is a really good coach. 
Because if he got fired tomorrow at noon, he'd have a job tomorrow at 1 p.m. Or sooner. Be thankful, Niner fans. This is not the Jim Tom Sula, Chip Kelly, Dennis Erickson, Mike Singletary regime. And the fact that it's three NFC Championship games or better in the past four years, that's awesome. Would it have been nice to win one? Yeah. How would your life be different? Would you get a Super Bowl ring? No. But as we, as I grow up and I'm in my 40s now, yeah, winning a Super Bowl would be nice, but I'm not on the team. Right? Like if I was in a men's over 35 basketball league and we won the championship, that would mean more to me than the Niners getting a Super Bowl because at least I was part of that. All you are, fans, are us. We are machines for turning beer into piss. And we love our sports teams, 49ers especially, but not the end of the world. And we can do... I don't think we could do better than Shanahan. And it's not because, well, he hasn't won the Super Bowl. A lot of teams, 31 teams don't win the Super Bowl every year. That doesn't mean all those coaches are garbage. All right, let's get off the head coach soapbox and jump on the defensive coordinator soapbox. And again, per pro football focus, new defensive coordinator Steve Wilkes is ranked as a top 10 D.C., and here is the list. Bill Belichick, Lou Anarumo of the Bengals, Vic Fangio of the Dolphins, Dan Quinn of the Cowboys, Steve Spagnuolo of the Chiefs, Don Martindale of the Giants, Raheem Morris of the Rams, Brian Flores of the Vikings, Ejiro Evero of the Panthers, and Steve Wilkes at 10th of the 49ers. Here is the quote from Pro Football Focus. Wilkes was the defensive passing game coordinator and secondary coach for the Panthers in 2022 before taking over as the interim head coach following Matt Rule's firing. The Panthers opted to go elsewhere at head coach, but the Niners, with a recent defensive coordinator vacancy, scooped Wilkes up. It was a tough season for Wilkes, who was put in an unfavorable spot when he took over in Carolina, but he has 14 years of experience in the league and should keep that Niner defense playing at a high level in 2023. And I think for a lot of people and fans and media speculation, they they thought Vic Fangio might have been the front runner, and he decided to sign with Mike McDaniel's. Perhaps he got a better deal um, financially. Perhaps he didn't want to run predominantly a cover three defense that Kyle Shanahan tends to to figure. But if you want to call it a consolation prize, and I I don't even want to call it that. I think Steve Wilkes is a phenomenal hire. <laughs> Head coaching experience, interim with the Panthers, um, got a full year with the Cardinals. I know that didn't go well for him, but widely regarded as a leader of men and a strong defensive coordinator. And how things may look slightly different with Wilkes versus D'Amico Ryans, when we're talking about aggressiveness and blitzing, if we're going to use the 2019 Browns as an example, they blitzed at a 38.2% rate, which is the fifth highest in the league, and he had the second highest rate of blitzing defensive backs. Regarding coverages with the Browns, in 2019, he was playing zone. He was in the top five playing zone, but he has stated that he wants to potentially play more man with San Francisco. And again, that's going to go hands in hand with how well the defensive line is performing, if they're getting penetration, the confidence he has in Charvarius Ward, Diamador Lenore, and Isaiah Oliver in the secondary, in addition to the safeties. 
But here's a quote from Steve Wilkes. I believe in, I believe in zone eyes. I think that's how you make plays on the football, particularly from the underneath positions. So zone is still going to be a high element of what we do. But I feel like we have the skill set and the talent to be able to get in a guy's face, press man, make the quarterback hold the ball, particularly with our front. Mentioning press man, fifth-round rookie Daryl Luther was something that he excelled out in college. Obviously, a transition, some transition time will be made in terms of the increase in talent he's going to experience in the pros, but he may be playing up more in terms of corners closer to the line of scrimmage than maybe uh, Ryan's or Sala has in the past. Now, the other big difference calling plays, Steve Wilkes will be in the booth up high versus D'Amico Ryan's and Robert Sala around the sideline. So, you know, if, if he feels more comfortable being up there in the booth, that's great if he can see the chessboard a little bit better than maybe Sala or Ryan's could. Fantastic. It will be uh, sad to not see an, uh, uh, another coach, offensive or defensive, but in this case defensive, getting all high energy and riled and excited on the sidelines with the players when a big play is made. I'm sure the TV crew will go to the booth if a sack, strip sack, fumble, interception, safety, something's made, and we'll see Steve Wilkes get excited. But it was cool to see D'Amico Ryans and Robert Sala exude that much emotion on the sidelines. I don't know if the team fed off that or not, or they're not. You know, we're not going to say that they're not going to be as intense this year because they don't have a defensive coordinator on the sideline with them. Absolutely not. I think it was more for an entertain, at least for me, more for entertainment purposes seeing those two former DCs get all hyped up. So transitioning from coaches to draft steals, ESPN listed their 50 biggest draft steals of the past decade and three 49ers were in the top 15. Now the only rules to this list were there were no first round picks. I mean, cause a first round pick should pan out, right? And no undrafted free agents because that would skew the numbers because usually every team more or less has a player that makes the roster every year as an undrafted rookie free agent. But let's go over the the Niners that made this biggest draft steals list. At number eight, George Kittle, fifth round pick in 2017, had a good rookie season, then year two broke out for a then record 1377 receiving yards by a tight end. He is if he is the most complete tight end in the NFL. I think Brock Purdy uh being quarterback this year again if he's healthy and everything goes according to plan looks for Kittle quite a bit so his touchdown production jumped the second half of the season when um Brock Purdy was the quarterback, but they're going to have to limit his, you know, snaps in a way and, and and find out ways of keeping him fresh. And we're going to talk about tight ends in a little bit. So we'll, we'll get into that. So, you know, Kittle, 29 years old, obviously has, you know, I think three-ish years left on his contract. And he'll probably get another contract the way that Travis Kelsey did. And Kelsey is older uh, of the Chiefs than, than George Kittle. But they definitely want to prolong his ability or abilities as much as they can. 
But blocking does take a toll, but that is one of the things he is known for in addition to being such a very good receiving outlet as well. So Kittle 8th, ninth. Fred Warner, third round pick in 2018 out of BYU. He earned the Mike linebacker starting role in training camp along with the green dot on the helmet, meaning he was the defensive play caller. He is one of, if not the best, middle linebacker in the league and one of, if not the best, off-the-ball linebackers in terms of covering, uh, dropping into zone, covering tight ends, running sideline to sideline. Great pick in the third round. And at number 14, Debo Samuel, who is a second-round pick in 2019, had a good rookie year en route to the Super Bowl against the Chiefs. And I'm sure Niner fans will remember that Kyle Shanahan coached Debo at the Senior Bowl that uh, that year when Debo was still with University of South Carolina, and it was almost the worst-kept secret about how much Shanahan liked Debo as he was in the early stages of wanting positionless football players, Debo lining up outside slot, receiver, end-arounds, handoffs. Um, so I think you know a really good pick in the second round that fits what Shanahan wants to do. So moving from steals, draft steals anyway, let's go to Kyle Yushtek on Brock Purdy. He was on the Rich Eisen show last week, and he had some really interesting things to say about Purdy. Interesting, obviously, in a good way. So, quote, when I describe Brock to people, and truly, this is the biggest compliment that I could ever receive, I say he's a football player. The guy has just played a lot of ball. He started since he was a freshman at Iowa State, so he played a lot of games. When you're playing that position, especially a quarterback, you just need those reps. You need those live reps, those live bullets, and just certain little things, timing things, natural reactions. They just get ingrained in your head, and you're just not thinking as much out there. You're just reacting. And Ustek continued... And I felt like that's what he was doing. He was just going out there and he was reacting. He didn't have to think about it as much. It sounds so much easier than what it really is to have the confidence to do that as the last pick of the draft, as a rookie, you're in the first year of this offense to have the trust in Kyle to say, all right, this is what Kyle told me to do during the week when we did the install. I'm just going to do that and I'm going to react. I'm not going to overthink it. And I felt like that's what he really did. And lastly, Brock was so well-prepared, they didn't have to overthink things, and he really just ran the offense. He didn't try to do too much. He trusted in the playmakers that he had. He's got a plethora of weapons in our offense, and he didn't try to take on too much. He just went out there, and he reacted. Now, saying reacted three times in three different quotes, why is this important? Because I think what people see in Brock Purdy, fans and coaching staff alike, is... uh, Independent of the confidence, he's got some swagger that he is delivering the ball on time and limiting mistakes. That is, that should never ever be understated for a rookie in this offense, which has been stated multiple times that quarterbacks usually take two years to feel comfortable. I'm sure Brock will feel more comfortable in year two than year one, but for what he did year one, I think the term reacting, seeing is what, what is there, delivering the ball on time to the right target. And remember, you only have, what, two seconds 
maybe three on a longer developing play to read the defense and deliver the ball. This isn't basketball where as the point guard, you can dribble up, analyze what's going on, decide if you want to pass, if you want to break down the defense, get into the lane. You have time in basketball to do that. You don't have time as a quarterback. So having what you said, natural reactions and instincts, being confident, not doing too much, trusting the play. Those are things that will be improved and amplified. The more you get reps, the more you run those plays. And that is right now, not the knock what Trey Lance needs, right? He only played one year of college ball. He only played four or five games in the NFL. He does he does not have the reps to get comfortable enough where the situation is reacting, where it's instinctive. You may know where to go with the ball on paper, but once you hike the ball and see where the coverages are rotating, things are going to change. Can you get to your second or third option quickly? Remember, that's a lot. That's the big knock on young quarterbacks. Even you say, go back 10 years with Kaepernick, even though I think he gets a bad rap, young quarterbacks tend to be first option, your first look, your first read. And if it's not there, tuck and go. Steve Young early in his career, that's what he was. Lamar Jackson early, that's what he was. A lot of rookies do get antsy and want to bail the pocket when the first read is covered because they don't have that quick reaction time or diagnosis time to go through your reads. That might be a little bit different than instincts that Kyle Juszczyk is talking about, but I think there is some overlap diagnosing the defense, diagnosing the play, understanding what the defense is trying to do and getting it to the right person. And oh, by the way, doing that all in under two and a half or three seconds. It's not that you're born with something like that. People can be born with certain athletic traits. I don't think you're born with having a faster processor mentally to read a defense. Yes, I agree. It comes with live repetitions. He got a ton in Iowa State. Trey Lance did not get, he got 25% as much in, at North Dakota State. It's going to matter. But I will say this. There are a lot of four-year college quarterbacks that have flopped in the NFL. We're not even talking first-round picks. Second, third, all the way through seventh. You know, a dozen or so quarterbacks or more are drafted every year. How many actually pan out to do anything? How many have a good first year and crap out the second year? That's a possibility for Brock. I'm hoping it doesn't happen, and I don't think it will, but you never know. So let's not just say it's not just because he started four years. A lot of quarterbacks that have tried to come to the NFL after four years at a powerhouse program, a good program, like an Iowa State, haven't made it in the league. So there's still something else about Brock that got him to be a highly efficient quarterback in this system. And one last thing. During that uh, interview was on the uh, Rich Eisen uh, radio show or podcast. He was with George Kittle. George Kittle was actually with Kyle Juszczyk and his wife at their house, I believe in Long Island. 
And Yushek was on speakerphone and Kittle overheard the conversation. He just kind of came in and said, hey, Rich Eisen, are you still, are you asking us about quarterbacks again? Is there anything else that anyone wants to ask us other than the quarterback position? It's been like five years now in San Francisco. And it is the most talked about position on the team. It is the juiciest, the sexiest. And even when Brock is anointed the starter, when he gets a full clear bill of a full bill of health, clear bill of health, there's still going to be discussions about it. Cause if Brock has a bad game or two, then there'll be the discussions of, Oh, should it be Trey? Should it be Darnold? It's never going to go away. But rich eyes. And I think got it. He did get a kick out of Kittle being there, uh, putting his two cents in, which really wasn't much. It's just kind of one of those again, like he earned it. Brock played well. We're going to be rolling with him. And then we'll see where obviously the team is at at the end of training camp with Brock's elbow. So let's stay with Kittle. Let's stay with tight ends. The last portion of the 49ers section of the podcast, tight end analysis. So there are six tight ends on the team. George Kittle, Ross Dwelly, Charlie Werner, Cameron Latou, Braden Willis, and Troy Fumagalli. So Kittle, obviously the number one. They've been looking for a solid number two since Kittle was drafted. Ross Dwelly had some promise, uh, probably the better receiving option between him and Charlie Werner, who are both only on one-year deals or the last de- last year of their contract. They drafted Cameron Latou out of um, Alabama and Braden Willis out of Oklahoma, and Troy Fumagalli was with the team uh, last year or the year before on the practice squad. So here's what the Niners are looking for per tight end coach Brian Flurry, when you're looking on how to supplement George Kittle in the rest, in the room, in the tight end room, you're just looking for a combination of all those skills among whoever is behind George. It's up to us to manage who's in the game at what point. So if George is not, we make sure that we can get the most out of it. And I don't think Brian Flurry was saying that a specific player had to have all the elements Everything that makes George Kittle who he is, even if it's 80% of that, 70%, 60%, if you can get some pass blocking from one player, some receiving from another, not that you want specialists at tight end. If Listen, if you're brought in as a tight end in the NFL, you're going to be expected to block and you're going to be expected to catch catch passes. Again, I go back to just like with third down running backs. These are players or people that have been playing football their entire lives. You can't tell me you can't catch the football. And if for some reason you can't get in front of the jugs machine and work on it. If a 10 year old can catch a football, a 25 or 28 or 22 year old can as well. I'm wildly convinced of that. Here's how the tight end room is breaking down in terms of guaranteed money, etc. Ross Dwelly signed a one year deal the Niners would be on the hook for $700,000. They would save $380,000 if cut. Charlie Werner only owed $45,000 in the last year of his contract. The Niners would save a million dollars if cut. Cameron Latou, third round draft pick, owed $857,000 if cut. Uh, they would save $106,000. Braden Willis, if cut, the 49ers would be on the hook for $80,000, but save $690,000. And Troy Fumagalli, they would owe him nothing or no cap hit, but save $940,000. Now, receptions, you know, Dwelly, not a better receiver than Werner. Werner, a better blocker than Ross Dwelly. In their time with the team, Dwelly has 43 receptions. Werner has eight. 
In college, Cameron Latou, 56 receptions. And his time at Alabama, at Oklahoma, Braden Willis, 75 catches. And Troy Fumagalli, his time in the NFL, 14 receptions. I honest, So I think, you know, they're going to keep four tight ends. Kyle has kept four tight ends for the past several years. I, I can't imagine it just being three. Right now, I'm leaning towards Charlie Warner getting cut just because of that million dollars in savings. It is the most of the, you know, we'll call them the top five. Dwelly would only save 380000 Cameron Latou, 106, and a third-round pick is not getting cut. Braden Willis, although a seventh-round pick, they would save 690. And Troy Fumagalli, they would save 940. He's gonna, he's destined for the practice squad, if anything. And I think it's important that two rookies make the 49ers team because Dwelly and Werner are on their last year. And let's just say it's Kittle, Dwelly, Latou, and Willis. At least if Dwelly is not resigned after this year, at least you have. Kittle, Latou, and Willis signed for at least the next two to three years, assuming Latou and Willis work out and there's no injuries or anything. I think the tight end room looks pretty decent. I think they could use another for training camp and the preseason. I don't think there's any reason other than practices to put Kittle out there. Even if you know you like Dwelly, I wouldn't maybe put him out there as well. You, you know, you could throw Warner out there if you put him out there as trade bait. Or I don't think anyone's going to trade for Charlie Werner. They're probably going to release him. And you want to see what you have in the rookies. Latou and Willis, like, you know, can they can they mix it up? Can they get grimy on the line? How's everybody's route running? And I mentioned Troy Fumagalli is probably destined for the practice squad. But they have, the 49ers have only 89 players under contract. They have an open roster spot that I think they could add maybe a tight end, maybe another running back maybe a safety just to beef up one of those three positions. But I will save my official picking of the 49ers tight ends. Um, My initial look at the 53 man roster will happen end of July. And I think you probably can tell already where I am leaning, but that concludes the 49ers section of the podcast. Stay right here. We're going to be talking NBA deals, either good or absurd. We're going to be talking box office. How did Indiana Jones do? How did the ill-fated Ruby Gilman teenage Kraken do? Along with Jennifer Lawrence's No Hard Feelings. Interesting article about The Flash and his In the Movie Universe Jewish heritage. We're going to be talking about ESPN layoffs and Twitter rate limits, which got too many people up in arms because they ain't getting off their phone and going outside. Stay right here. It's plus time. Okay, let's kick off the plus section talking NBA free agency, some big money deals in the first week plus of the free agency period. I'm not going to go through all of them. There were a lot of absurd deals, absurd amounts of money thrown around to players who are not superstars or even close. But I boiled it down to four that I saw as maybe the most absurd deal, absurd deals. Now, let's start with the Indiana Pacers point guard Tyrese Halliburton, who started his career Four seasons ago with the Sacramento Kings, was there for two years, then traded to the Pacers. 
and he's been with Indiana the past two years. He got a five-year, $260 million extension, $52 million a year, and he did improve his two years in Indiana on top of his first two years in the league with Sacramento. His two-year averages with the Pacers, 19, point, 19 points a game, 3.3 rebounds, and 10 assists. Under 20 points a game, now, granted, the 10 assists is a nice number. Under 20 points a game nets you $52 million a year. Now, let's go to Sacramento. Power forward slash center, DeMontis Sabonis, signed a five-year, $217 million contract, so $43 million a year on average. And in his two years with Sacramento... He's averaging 19 points a game, 12.3 rebounds, and six and a half assists. Maybe you could see that that's in the realm of the points uh, of the stat line that Halbert put up. Maybe I would even argue better. The points are the same. Uh, nine more rebounds a game and only three and a half less assists for a big man. But still, 40. $3 million a year. Think about the NFL because this is mainly a football podcast, right? Or at least the, the front end of it is the players that are making 40 to $50 million a year. Who are they? Essentially it's Patrick Mahomes. It's Jalen hurts. Granted it came off. He had a good timing to get his extension coming off of um, a Super Bowl appearance. Joe Burrow is going to get something close to that. Justin Herbert's going to get something close to that. Then, you know, receivers, uh, Tyreek Hill, I think, is the highest paid wide receiver. I think he's making close to $30 million a year. 22, and he's the best wide receiver. One, Let's just say he's a top three wide receiver in the league. Is Tyrese Halliburton a top three point guard? I don't know. I, I'm not sure. Is he worth $52 million a year? No, but let's keep going. Shooting guard Fred Van Vliet left the Toronto Raptors for the Houston Rockets, signed a three-year $130 million deal. His last three years in Toronto, 19.7 points, 4.2 rebounds, 6.7 assists per game. So that's what, $43 million a year? Are these people allergic to averaging more than 20 points, 20 points a game or more? Is that too much to ask when someone is making $40 million a year in the NBA in a league where scoring has gone through the roof? Defense doesn't really exist anymore. Oh, but wait, someone who made their living really being a scrapper, a hustler, more defensive than offensive oriented. Golden State Warriors power forward Draymond Green opted out of the final year of his contract, which is going to pay him about $32, $33 million. 33 years old, will be 34 this season, signed a four-year $100 million, $100 million extension with the Golden State Warriors. The last three years with Golden State, he's averaging 7.7 .7 points, 7.2 rebounds, and 7.6 assists a game. Now, aside from the 777, which I guess is hitting the jackpot, you know, at a casino on slots, 
Does that equate to $25 million a year for someone who will be 37, 38 when this contract is up? This is why the Golden State Warriors GM left. He figured that they were going to re-sign Draymond and to keep their old core of uh, Steph Curry, Draymond Green, um, and Klay Thompson. And they, you know, they have Wiggins, they have some other pieces around it, but this team has plateaued and they had a great run, four championships, 25 million. Yeah, he's making half what Tyrese Halliburton does. That's great, but $25 million, this is almost like a uh, retirement, like a golden parachute, past performance pay. Because even if he continues his 7.7 rebounds, 7 assists a game, that's not worth $25 million. And I don't care about the intangibles. I don't care about if he's diving on the ground. or How much more is he going to be diving on the ground? He's going to break a hip in his mid-30s. Look at these numbers. 52 a year, 43 a year, 42 a year, 25 a year. Essentially what these deals are saying is that if you take other stats out of it outside of points, and I know other things are important, but no one plays defense in the, in the NBA anymore. If teams are scoring in the 110s, 120s regularly, defense is optional. People are passing up wide open twos, sometimes layups to kick the ball out for even a contested three. It's all about points, guys. And what this is saying is, if you can average one point a game in the NBA, you are entitled to $1 to $2 million a year as, as part of a contract. If I can average one point a game and I sign a four-year deal, I'd have a $4 million contract. That's absurd. There is no mathematical equivalent, at least that I can think of, in football, in Major League Baseball. I'm not too sure about hockey. These numbers are out of control for above-average talent. Superstars should get paid like superstars. Above-average players should not get maxed out. Tyrese Halliburton should not be making $52 million a year. DeMontis Sabonis should not be making $53 million, $43 million a year. He certainly should be making 53. I watch enough basketball to know who, and I'm sure you do too, to know who's a superstar and who's not. Right? Like within the NFL, they would talk about is for a while was is Eli Manning an elite quarterback? No. Elite is top three, top five at the most. In the NBA, if you want to talk about elite players, maybe there's 15 to 18 in the league. And that might be high. Maybe I would go 10 to 10 to 14. Nobody I mentioned here is elite. And they're all making at least, well, not Trayvon Green, at least $40 million to average less than 20 points a game. Congratulations, America. God bless. Now, actually, some good deals for the team. Not necessarily for the player, because they should have gotten more. Shooting guard Eric Gordon signed a two-year, $6 million deal with the Phoenix Suns. 34 years old. Last year, though, he did average 12 points, two rebounds, and 2.4 assists per game. Now, the Suns did bring in Bradley. Um, 
you have obviously Devin Booker at guard, so Gordon's going to be a backup. Maybe he didn't have a market that he could have gotten more than $3 million a year over two years. Maybe he wants to play for a championship. Who knows? Eric Gordon is worth more than two years, $6 million total, but a good signing by the Suns. You usually don't see a team with a big three or kind of big four if you want to throw DeAndre Ayton in, although I don't say that, but between Bradley, uh, Durant, and Devin Booker, to have a, a solid depth player like that, we'll see what backup centers, the forward situation looks like for them, but good signing for the Suns. And Russell Westbrook of the Clippers averaged last season with the Clippers, because he started out with the Lakers, with the Clippers 15.8 points, 4.9 rebounds, and 7.6 assists per game. Former league MVP. Someone who has a crap ton of triple doubles throughout his career. Signed a two-year $7.8 million deal with the Clippers. Now, only two for $7.8 million. They had a certain exception that they could have used. I think a $3.8 million. I forget the exact title of the exceptions they had to sign him. And he was very vocal about wanting to come back. I, I, I'm assuming Russell Westbrook, again, even at 34, could have made more than $3.9 million a year for two years. Listen, if he's happy, if Eric Gordon's happy, then I'm happy. God knows they've made bank already. They don't need the money, but it's always good to get more money. Good signings for both of those two teams. Now, the Lakers, surprisingly, did made a lot of moves that I like. Not that I'm downplaying the Lakers or, or dislike the Lakers or anything, but they made practical signings and signings commensurate to the talent of the player, or at least, you know, financially commensurate to the talent of the player. So power forward Rui Hachimura, this past season with LA, averaged 12.5 points a game, five rebounds and 1.3 assists, signed three years, $51 million, $17 million average. Good signing to bring him back and at a good number. Point guard D'Angelo Russell signed for two years, $37 million. So $18.5 million a year he averaged. 17.7 points, three and a half rebounds, and 5.7 assists per game last season. Who else is coming back? Shooting guard Austin Reeves signed, and he, he gets, uh, like I think, an 8% increase or something like that every season, but it's going to max out to be a four year, $56 million deal. So a 16 or $14 million per year average. And last season, he averaged 10.2 points, 3.1 rebounds, and 2.6 assists a game. The, the money to me on average, 17 million, 18 and a half million, 40 million to me is commensurate to the production that a Hachimura is giving you 12 and a half points. D'Angelo Russell, 17 and a half points, Reeves, 10.2 points. And it's not all about points on a stat line. I get it, but it's a scoring league. Points are going to be the most important thing. Now, they signed D'Angelo Russell, but they also went after point guard Gabe Vincent from the Miami Heat. He signed three years, $33 million, so $11 million average. The last two seasons with Miami, he averaged nine points, two rebounds, and 2.8 assists a game. This, this was a little bit curious to me. Once you bring back D'Angelo Russell at point guard, you, yeah, you get, you get Gabe Vincent for the extra year. He's a three-year signing versus Russell's a two-year signing. But to go $11 million on a backup point guard, like that would have been a good spot for an Eric Gordon. I mean, Russell Westbrook did not work out in L.A., but 
it seems like $11 million for a backup player is high. However, they can do that because they gave reasonable deals to Hachimura, Russell, and Reeves. Now, they also brought in uh, small forward Cam Reddish, power forward Torian Prince, and center backup center behind um, Anthony Davis, Jackson Hayes. Lakers made... How rare is it for a big market team to make sensible moves? It's usually the splash moves with a Lakers or the Celtics or the Knicks, you know, the Mets, Yankees, Cubs, Dodgers in baseball and football too. Obviously the Jets bring in an Aaron Rodgers, a sensibly built roster by the Lakers management. I have to give them kudos. And we're not going to get out of the NBA section without talking about Kyrie Irving, who I don't know if he overestimated his market, but Dallas had no choice after trading for him, signed him to a three-year, $126 million deal. Are we going to cry that Kyrie Irving is making $42 million a year? No. He couldn't get anything longer. I mean, he maybe sets himself up that if he actually plays well, he'll play well, but if he's actually a level-headed employee and shows up and plays and doesn't cause problems that he could maybe get another extension, another contract after this. Did he overplay his hand a little bit? Could he have gotten more if he had stayed with the Nets? Sure. This isn't a bad deal. This is a great deal for him. It's still, I think a high number for what he is. Total package. Dallas had no choice. James Harden opted into his one-year $35.6 million player option with the 76ers, but he is looking to be traded. Who is going to want James Harden? The only team that's going to want to maybe take him on is as a salary dump. That his $35.6 million goes to Team X, and Team X sends back to the Sixers Close to $30 million worth of player salary and picks to get future money off the off play off team X's books because James Harden is only signed for one year. They cannot, the way his contract is structured, he cannot be re-upped, re-signed by either the Sixers or whatever team acquires him. It would have to be an after-the-season type of thing. I don't know what James Harden's play is here. He has a probably a better chance sticking with the Sixers and getting to a title versus they were flirting with him going to the Rockets. You know, they've made some nice additions, but they're not a James Harden, even with those additions of James Harden away from a championship. He's made a lot of money. I don't know. I don't know what James Harden wants. He's in the twilight of his career. He's played in one finals with Oklahoma city with Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant when they lost to the Miami Heat. Feels like it might have been 10 years ago at this rate. I'm not even sure. But I don't know what I don't know what the play is for James Harden. We know what the play is for Damian Lillard. After the first couple days of free agency, he didn't demand a trade. Once he saw what the Blazers did or didn't do, now he has demanded a trade. And I don't think a Harden for a Harden and picks for Lillard swap was going to work. It would it would align at least from a money standpoint or be close, but then Harden is going to go to a team that's not close to competing. Lillard is an upgrade on Harden in Philadelphia, but a lot of the discussion, I don't know if James Harden would want to go there. 
I, I don't even know if he ultimately, ultimately wants out of Philly. I know they're working on a trade, but there might not be one. And he might wind up ending up playing with the Sixers and maybe gets moved to the trade deadline when the season starts. Damian Lillard, a lot has been made about the fact that he does not have a no trade clause. So the Blazers, the talk is that the Blazers are going to do whatever is best for the team. Yeah, within reason. Damian Lillard has been the good soldier for the entirety of 10, 11, 12 year career in Portland. But like anything else, if they say that they're going to trade him to Detroit, the Spurs, I mean, the Spurs will be better with Victor Wembayama, but they're not close. A team that's not close to competing, Lillard can just say, I'm not going to show up. So even if they're, even without the no trade clause, Lillard has a say. Don't let anybody tell you differently. Should the Blazers do good by Dame because of what he's given that team in the past decade plus? Sure, but it's a business. You have to look out for yourself. The Blazers were here before Damian Lillard. They will be here after Damian Lillard. And that after is going to be coming probably within the next couple days or a couple weeks. They have to do what's right for them. But in the NBA, the players hold all the cards. He wants to go to the Heat. He will probably go to the Heat. Now, transitioning from NBA and sports, let's talk box office. So Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny had a $60 million opening domestic weekend. We're not getting into 4th of July, Monday or Tuesday. This is Friday, Saturday, Sunday, $60 million below industry estimates. It added $70 million at the international box office for a global start worldwide of $130 million. Not good. That global start of $130 million is worse than The Flash, which made $139 million globally. And oh, by the way, cost $100 million less to make. Upwards of $300 million production costs for Indiana Jones before you're not even talking about promotional costs yet. Marketing $200 million for the flash, which is still a lot. Indiana Jones bombed and it shouldn't be too surprising to people. And and it it's suffering the same fate as DC movies. In my opinion, even though, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, Indiana Jones 4, made, I think, almost $800 million worldwide, which it's shocking because that movie was so average or worse that people, I think, were just kind of turned off. And maybe people were like, oh, God, 10, 10, a 10 years older, Harrison Ford. What is that going to look like? By all reviews and estimates, it's a fun movie. The CGI, the de-aging, you could definitely tell when there's a stunt person in there because Harrison Ford was late 70s when this was filmed. But I think the nostalgia factor did not play as heavily into it as um, Disney thought. And they are going to take a bath on this movie. They're going to lose a ton of money. It wasn't a bad idea to make Indiana Jones. It was a bad idea for it to cost $300 million. If they could have done it for half, then maybe the movie the movie would probably turn a profit. Now it's not. So from a kind of good idea, let's go to a flat-out bad idea. Animated movie Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken, including Monday, made... So Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, made $6.5 million domestically, 
14.7 total around the world. This was an animated movie that cost $70 million to make. So it has to make about $170 million to break even. It is not going to get close. This movie looked like something that would be an animated series on not even Disney Jr., maybe Nick Jr. I don't know who greenlit this. Reviews-wise, the people that are seeing it like it. But I think a lot of people are looking at it going, I don't know about this. And I'm one of them. And that was playing before Elemental. And I asked my son if he wanted to see the Teenage Kraken movie. And he said, no, but I, I think some of that is for young kids. You know, it's a female lead animated movie. So he or maybe other kids or boys are thinking that that's, you know, more of a, of a girl movie. I don't know if that's how much that's the case. It just looked when I saw previews of this for this, maybe a month or so ago, it had bomb written all over it. My God, people can just pitch shit in Hollywood and it gets made. It's unbelievable. Last but not least, No Hard Feelings starring Jennifer Lawrence, a comedy made $15 million domestically in its opening weekend. Now it stands at 31 and a half domestically 51.6 around the world. It cost $45 million to make. So it's going to have to get into like the one tens, one twenties to break even. And I don't think that's going to get there either. And again, by all reviews and accounts, it's a funny movie. And, but I think this, you know, begs the question of is Jennifer Lawrence a box office star? She's a movie star. Let's not conflate the two. She is a movie star. She's won an Oscar for Silver Linings Playbook and was nominated for an Oscar for Winter's Bone, American Hustle, and Joy. She is a phenomenal actress. She is a movie star. She is not a box office draw when the movie hangs on or revolves around her. That is just a fact, and the numbers bear it out. Outside of the Hunger Games and the X-Men movies, which are franchises, her movies have been financially disappointing. American Hustle made over $100 million. Silver Linings Playbook made over $100 million. Now, she was playing opposite some, some big-name male stars as well. And she had a phenomenal performance. Again, like I said, either won an Oscar or was nominated for one. Not taking anything away from the talent. But if you're going to have Jennifer Lawrence, now again, Hunger Games was a wildly popular set of books. And I'm not going to say they could put, they could have put any female lead in there and it would have had the same box office result. No, but it would have had maybe 80, 85% of it, 90% of it. And X-Men is a superhero film ensemble where she's playing with other playing. She's acting with other big name actors and actresses. I mean, she's one of the biggest names. But people aren't going to X-Men to see Jennifer Lawrence, even though she is in blue body paint and is essentially kind of naked as Mystique for most of the movie. Good for Jennifer Lawrence. I like her as an actress. I just think Hollywood has to look at her and put her in the right movies for the right cost, low cost, or pair her up with the right actor, actors, actresses, ensemble, like an X-Men, to really maximize her star power because it's not shining bright enough when it's just her. 
So sticking with movies, and I, we talked about X-Men, so superhero movies. Saw an interesting article entitled, The Flash is a Missed Opportunity, Continuing the Disappointing History of Jewish Superheroes. Now, when I read that, I did a double take, and I had to actually Google, I'm like, is Barry Allen the Flash Jewish? I've read a lot of DC comic books in my life. Uh, the Flashpoint series, Jeff Johns, Flashpoint or Flash Rebirth, among others, it's never come up. I mean, it, it, it's not that it's weird how you work in and, hey, I'm Jewish, I'm Catholic, I'm Protestant conversation, and he's not running around with like a necklace of the Star of David on. So it's hard to like work that into, you know, a comic book issue. But he's not Jewish in the comics. He is in this now defunct DC extended movie universe. And Ezra Miller, Barry Allen mentioned it briefly, basically a throwaway line in the Justice League where uh, Bruce Wayne, Batman came in and he was like assembling his team. And he knew that Ezra Miller was the Flash and had powers. And uh, Bruce Wayne played a video of, of something fast happening in a convenience store and Ezra Miller said something like, no, that's just a, you know, nice Jewish boy that looks a lot like me. There you go. That's the extent of his Jewishness in the Justice League. Now, here are some quotes. Now, this was a long article that basically went nowhere, talked in circles, and it's just another whining for whining sake about, I don't want to say whining about representation because representation is important. But for the fact that this person grabbed onto the fact that Ezra Miller said the word Jewish in Justice League and thought it was going to be a major plot point in The Flash? Like, what? So here's a quote from the uh, author. So in a cinematic sphere fatigued by never-ending superhero films, The Flash had the chance to set itself apart, to be about something bigger than just more well-trodden multiversal shenanigans, but it squandered that opportunity by ignoring the established identity of the protagonist. Established identity, kind of. He mentioned it. It was a throwaway line to Bruce Wayne. Never mentioned again. I don't even think in the friggin' four-hour Zack Snyder extended cut of the Justice League was it mattered. It wasn't the story. He wasn't going back in time to stop the Holocaust. That was never on the table. He was, we went back in time to save his mother, and that caused there to be different Batmans, and Superman turned into Supergirl. That's the story. Get over yourself. Now, meanwhile, you know, I, I guess it's not enough that Jewish people run Hollywood. Jewish people are responsible for all, uh, largely, and this is a good thing. I'm not complaining. I love it because they've given me a lot of entertainment over the years. Ari Gold from the show Entourage, Jewish in the show, was based on a Jewish power agent in Hollywood. I don't know if Mark Wahlberg worked with him specifically because obviously Entourage is about Mark Wahlberg, Marky Mark, and his Entourage. But it's no secret that there's a lot of Jewish people of power in Hollywood. And that's awesome because by and large, they've been sailing the ship the right way. So that's not enough that, you know, Jewish people are behind the camera running things. Jewish creatives are the ones who invented the, most of the superheroes that we love. 
Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster created Superman. Bob Kane and Bill Finger, creators of Batman. Stan Lee and Jack Kirby created basically every Marvel superhero you can think of. So what's the, what's the problem? So then another quote. So I mentioned in my last podcast that Superman and Lois were recently cast for the upcoming Superman Legacy movie written and directed by James Gunn. David Cornswett was, this is the quote from the article, David Cornswett was cast for the role of Superman in James Gunn's Superman Legacy and a lot of buzz has followed about the possibility of the first Jewish Superman due to Cornswett's Jewish ancestry and his fa- from his father's side. Are we, does this person think that Superman's going to have Hasidic Jew curls on the side of his head? The first Jewish Superman? Can we at least get the nomenclature right? The first Jewish actor to play Superman will have no bearing on Superman. First of all, I mean, you can't be Jewish if you're an alien from coming from outer space. I guess you could say, does Ma and Pa Kent? who lives on a farm in Kansas, are they going to be Jewish and raise a Jewish Superman? It's possible. Now, I read somewhere that, you know, Judaism makes up 3% of of the population in the U.S. So in terms of a representation problem, there ain't ain't any. If there's, I mean, break it down mathematically, right? If there's 100 superheroes, three of them should be Jewish somewhere. And I guess there does, there should maybe be some more representation in, in comic books. The Moon Knight series with Oscar Isaac, he, he was Jewish, but this author had an issue with it that Mark Spector was Jewish, not the split personality who was Moon Knight. What? Does, does that matter to you? If the flesh and blood person is Jewish, it doesn't matter how many personalities they have, that physical being is Jewish or Christian, Catholic, Protestant, whatever. This is not a a Jewish thing. It's the fact that someone is grabbing onto something to complain about. In this case, it's religion that it wasn't more of the story. And then to kind of finish it off, quote from the author, another glaring example is from the X-Men Magneto, perhaps the most iconic superpowered Jewish character in cinema, thanks to his appearance in seven of the X-Men films. But not only was Magneto played by non non-Jewish actor, he was played by a non-Jewish actor twice, Ian McKellen and Michael Fassbender respectively. The only good thing I got out of that was I thought that the author was going to say, and not only is he represented in comic books, but he's evil. They're making Jewish people evil. He didn't, I, I, when I was reading, I'm like, God, I hope he's not going to say, and the Jewish person is evil. And he didn't. So kudos to him for having some semblance and shred of, of common sense writing this article. I am not a huge believer that whoever the character is, that the actor that has to play him or her has to match up with the skin color, with the ethnicity, with the sexual orientation. I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a believer in that. I want the best person to, to win the role and not have this be some sort of affirmative action casting to placate the vocal minority of, 
why isn't why wasn't Magneto played by you know Jewish actors? Remember Brendan Fraser of the Whale. There, people were complaining. Why did Brendan Fraser get the part and wear a fat suit? Why couldn't you find an obese person to play that character? And since that character was gay, why not an obese gay person? Good luck. They're out there. Are there many actors? I don't know. I didn't take a survey. But do you think that actor is going to be better than Brendan Fraser? No. Do you think finding a Jewish actor would have been better than Michael Fassbender or Ian McKellen? Sir Ian McKellen? No. And remember, people that are on this soapbox, I'm all about representation. I'm all for it. I really, really am. Even if it sounds like I'm not. But when we're talking about acting, isn't that the profession when you pretend to be someone else? It is. Now let's move back to sports, so to speak. ESPN this past week had a round of unfortunate layoffs. And I'm going to go through some of the bigger names. So in the NBA, announcer Jeff Van Gundy, Jalen Rose and Lafonso Ellis. Um, hosts, personalities, Max Kellerman, Susie Kolber, Ashley Brewer, NFL, Draftnik, Todd McShay, excuse me, Todd McShay gone, Keyshawn Johnson, Steve Young, Matt Hasselbeck, David Pollock was a college football analyst. You know, Jeff Van Gundy, I really enjoy, you know, the finals. I think he brings a lot of insight. Jalen Rose, I like as a personality. He was the host of a show, a half hour show called David, um, Jalen and Jacoby. Um, with David Jacoby was a great half hour show that ended end of last year. And I guess he was more relegated to just being an NBA personality. Max Kellerman, um, was the host of a morning, uh, drive time, national sports talk show with Keyshawn Johnson and Jason Williams, Kellerman and and Keyshawn both gone. Susie Colbert. I remember when she started with Stuart Scott in the nineties, when ESPN two kicked off. Todd McShay really just around for the draft. And as much as the NFL is a year round business or year round, uh, media darling, uh, Mel Kiper being the established draft person. I don't know if they're going to bring someone else in that's cheaper contract wise than Todd McShay. Uh, but I was kind of sad to see him go. Keyshawn Johnson did multiple things. NFL live, his show got canceled and he had a hefty salary to begin with. Uh, Steve Young was doing some uh, Monday night countdown and, and discussions after Monday night games. It was really just niche to football. Matt Hasselbeck, David Pollock, again, just niched to their sports. It does seem a bit, and these were not, what did I list? Three, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. There was close to 20 um, firings, and, and they're probably not done yet, unfortunately. There's going to be more, but this is such a bad look. After ESPN hired Pat McAfee to bring his Pat McAfee show to ESPN for five years, $85 million. So $17 million a year, which is probably more than if you combine six or seven of those salaries of the people that I mentioned that got let go. What they are getting is a daily-ish show. They're getting 230 shows a year from him. And... It's going to help their their streaming presence greatly. They've been they've been kicking multiple personalities around. They haven't really been able to get it off the ground. What's interesting in doing some research, 
He's making $17 million a year from ESPN. And what I read, Pat McAfee had a four-year, $130 million deal, which is over $30 million a year with, I don't know if it was DraftKings or FanDuel. And he left for ESPN. There's got to be some perks involved and or the number that I read was wildly misquoted. But it's a bad look that you sign one person for a crap ton of money and you're getting rid of a bunch of personalities. Although I understand that you can't be about one thing, one sport. Like some, not all, but but the majority of these people are. And it goes back, or it brings me to, when I look at the Pat McAfee, well, the Pat McAfee deal, I think is going to be a little bit different because of how he can bring in revenue from, from uh, streaming platforms. But Tom Brady... Retired, taking this year off. Next year, he will be the number one color commentator with Kevin Burkhart uh, for Fox. Signed a 10-year, $375 million deal with Fox when he starts. Tony Romo, 10 years, $180 million with CBS. Al Michaels with Prime, three years, $48 million. Troy Aikman, ESPN, Monday Night Football, five years, $92.5 million. Now, Good for all these people. Get your money. You know, it's not that Brady needs another $37.5 million a year. Romo doesn't need another $18 million a year. I'm sure Al Michaels did really well. And Troy Aikman also, you know, that's like another $16 million a year for him. But let's be honest, everybody. Does it matter at all who is announcing NFL games? I know there are people out there that have their favorites and have a seething hatred for certain commentators. Joe Buck is one that comes to mind. I'm not sure why. He's a knowledgeable guy. He calls good games. And is there a difference between the first, the, the number one team on a Fox or a CBS versus, like, or ESPN now with, with um, Trey Aikman and Joe Buck, versus like the number two, three, or four teams on CBS and Fox? Yes, there's... But I think it's a difference overall in terms of the cameraman and, and going to instant replay and the presentation as a whole seems better when you have the big guns, the number one teams involved. But Tom Brady, Tony Romo, Troy Aikman, Al Michaels on Prime, and he was the one that complained that the Prime games were crappy, which is why now they're flexing in three games at the end of the season. No one's going to watch Ratings are not going to improve because um, Tom Brady is commentating or because Tony Romo is commentating. And you know the biggest reason why? Because they're going to be doing the best games anyway. They're going to be doing the games that people are going to want to watch. They're not going to be doing <coughs> a Falcons-Texans game no matter what month of the season it is. Even if they both have good records. Who the frig wants to see those teams nationally? They're going to be doing the best games. These networks, so what ES, ESPN's not, not laying down a template for shedding salary, getting rid of analysts or, you know, high profile people making a lot of money for talking about sports. There's always going to be a market for that. But Christ, CBX, Fox, Amazon, and ESPN, people are going to watch for the product, not who's commentating the product. I truly, truly believe that somebody, if you're listening and you want to get into like a dialogue, email me. I'm on 
Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, um, Facebook, 49ers Plus Podcast. Let's talk about it. I really don't think any one of these commentators moves the needle to the point where they should be paid $18 million a year or more to call a football game. Now, I mentioned social media. Let's finish up with something, we'll say semi-lighthearted, although I know it pissed off a lot of people that hump their social media like crazy, like they want to get it pregnant. Twitter rate limits happens a couple days ago, and, and as of this recording, I don't believe they've been listed, lifted, but I'm sure they will at some point. And that essentially was limiting the number of posts you can read in a day. And we're all assuming that reading a post means just scrolling by it. Because it doesn't, the interface does not know if you're reading something or not. Chances are you're doom scrolling, shit posting, hate posting, whatever. And, and Twitter has become the most toxic of probably all the social media platforms. It's got the most, well, Facebook's got the most users, but Twitter not too far behind. And if it's not in the number two, it's in the top three or four. But so the rate limit increase coming down from Sir Lord Elon Musk, it was increased twice. So now the finalized rate limit would be 10,000 posts you could read if you're verified, which means you basically paid for the blue check mark. 1,000 for unverified and 500 for new unverified. I don't know how new you have to be. If it's the first month or three, I have no idea. But if you're reading more than 500 posts today, get a fucking life. Because God knows you're not only on Twitter. You are not only on Twitter. Now here's, let me just, before I just get back on the soapbox, here's Elon Musk's reason why. There were several hundred organizations we're taking Twitter's data in a process called scraping to use tweets for research or to train artificial intelligence programs and that it was affecting the real user experience. I don't know. I'm not a Twitter employee. And if I was, I probably would have been part of the 75% of jobs that Mr. Musk eliminated since joining in October. And the platform has been less stable. Their weekly ads are down sometimes by as much as 30%. Twitter is not what it used to be. I've only been on since I think the end of last year, and I am rarely on it. Rarely. But Elon Musk was is funny. I mean, I still think he's kind of a dick, but he was funny posting a tweet saying people you know, it, people are exceeding rate limits due to complaining about rate limits. That's kind of funny. Now, people that are not cool with this, I don't fall in your, I don't want to say demographic, but in your sphere of stupidity because I don't dry hump Twitter or social media at all. You people that are doing it, and I, I don't know if there's anyone that's listening to this that falls under that or not. Society is turning into the people from the starship on Wally that were obese, had low bone density and on the floaty rafts staring at their screens and drinking slushies all day. Get off your phones, people. Am I guilty about being on social media? Yes. And I will tell you how I use it. 
I used to post on Facebook like ironic, sarcastic stuff about if something happened in a sporting event or about a movie. Don't I don't post pictures of my kids. I don't post pictures of the food I eat. I don't post pictures about where I go. If anything, I post pictures of my dog because he's super adorable and everybody deserves to see him. And I know that's how people feel about, about kids, but I hate to break it to you. Your kids stop being cute at about 10 years old. So just stop posting. All I'm using it for now is once a day, I will create a post promoting the podcast. And I'll put the same post on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And Reddit when I can, but but they're very cautious about self-promotion. You have to post a certain number of times before they will allow you to do something. So I'm getting into the swing of it there. So I'm on Twitter. Am I on Twitter once a day? No. No, I'm on Twitter more than once a day. But I'll scroll through for maybe a minute or two at a time just to see what 49er moron content creators are bitching about. Maybe get some thoughts for, you know, the upcoming podcast, and then I'll put it down. I don't care about what's going on in other people's lives. I care about what's going on in my life, my family's lives, friends, extended family members. Sure, I don't need the play-by-play on Facebook. I don't need to know people's thoughts about God knows what on Twitter. I don't give a shit about TikTok. I don't want to see videos of people doing dumb shit. And I don't really care about people who are chest pounding about business this, business that, you know, all these nonsensical posts on LinkedIn. Don't care. But I'll use those platforms to promote. But I also know that it's a catch-22 that the 49ers Plus podcast probably isn't reaching as many people as it could because I don't dry hump social media. Now, I say that, and I'm actually going to add the podcast, I think, to YouTube, not a video version. I don't video myself. You don't got to see me to know I'm right or that I'm awesome. But I think I'm going to, since this is actually numerically episode 50, or at least even though I've renumbered stuff back and forth, this is a half a centennial type of celebratory um, episode. So I think I'm going to try to put it on YouTube and see how many more viewers the podcast gains. Am I going to promote it heavily? No. Same thing. One post on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Reddit once a day. That's all. Uh, Do I have time for more? Yeah. I just don't care to do it anymore because I think it's stupid being on social media that much. And soliloquy. And that ends the 49ers Plus podcast for today. I, again, want to wish everybody a belated happy 4th of July extended weekend. I hope everyone has a great, happy, and healthy next couple days. The next weekly version of the podcast will be coming either next Wednesday or Thursday, the 12th or 13th. So be well until then, and we will talk soon. Take care.